Thank you, Erica. Appreciate it. <clears throat> We have some new notes this morning as we press on in John 10. Um, in the other Bible study in John that is we're leading, I'm leading through work. Um, about four or four or five of us that get together over the phone Thursday mornings at seven, and um, uh, one of the guys that. Some of them are not used to what we, you know, what we said last Sunday, expositional teaching, you know, going through, you know, line by line, word by word, verse by verse. And uh, so there's been a little bit of gentle criticism of that. So I, I've gotten to where I say, well, we're walking through the, we're not driving through it. You know, we're walking through it, right? So we, when you walk through your neighborhood, you see a lot more detail when you drive through. Uh, so that's what we're doing. But we are, we are making progress, though, right? Sometimes we stop and linger a little bit, but we do try to keep moving. So, yes, thank you. Man. Appreciate it. Smell, smell the roses. Smell the roses, right. Hopefully you can get enough on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's important. Man of his. Status. <laughs> We're here to edify, right? Right, David? <laughs> <laughs> David is your backup man. That's right. The church has to have its punching bag. Oh. All right. Uh, one more time in prayer. Let's just very briefly. <clears throat> Father, by your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open hearts as we open your word, this, both here in Sunday school, but uh, also in the service. And then tonight, communion as well. In Jesus' name. John chapter 10, this is the second half of the chapter, okay, and um, and let me get one other book. I forgot to bring it up here. I have other books with me, but today I do. Um, this is remember that that these four chapters, chapters seven through ten, are um, are kind of a a section in John. Um, in which, um, first of all, and this is what we're going to say on the notes, and we'll belabor this a whole lot, but but they happen <clears throat> against the backdrop of the Feast of Tabernacles, right? Okay, so historically on the calendar, the timeline that John lets us know about is that is that these four chapters, seven through ten, happen what on our calendar is around the fall year, so end of September into October-ish time frame. It's roughly six months before Jesus is going to be crucified, buried, and raised, um, which is around our time now on the calendar, coinciding with April, March, <coughs> and, and Easter, of course. Um, <clears throat> so he's, he's the majority of his ministry is behind him at this point. Um, another big thing to keep in mind here is and this really plays into the second half of chapter 10 because as we dig into it we're going to um, kind of ask the question why wasn't he clearer about being the messiah in other words straight up talk, we've talked about this already but we're going to revisit it a little bit because you remember that at least in john's account um 
what he says to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, is the clearest because she says, you know, well, when the when the Messiah comes, he'll reveal all things. I who speak to you am he, right? That's you can't get much clearer than that. <clears throat> but they ask this question and here uh, his his enemies do as they surround him in the in the temple there. Um, why don't you just tell us plainly that you're the Messiah? Okay. And, and you can, there's a sense in which you can kind of understand their frustration a little bit, although, and we'll ask this question then, uh, you know, uh, there's some question as to whether it was really sincere. I don't think they were trying to drag out of him an excuse for them to stone him on the spot. Um, I'll just go ahead and say it. <laughs> uh, but the big thing to keep in mind here is that, and this is going to be important too as we go into chapter 11, the big thing to keep in mind here is that Jesus did not dwell a lot in Jerusalem and a Judean immediately a Judean area immediately around Jerusalem a whole lot in his ministry. Okay, that has become pretty really, really clear to me as I've been studying John and we, we look at Mark too. Same thing. You look at all these gospels, you know, and if you if you're really paying attention to where he is at what time. You're seeing him spend a lot of time up in Galilee. It was almost like um, Capernaum was sort of his, you know, capital, you know, like headquarters for his ministry. Now, he did travel around a lot, right? And, of course, he went through Samaria, right? Chapter 4 of John had to go through, had to go through Samaria. He had an appointment there. A lot of people found him there. So the question comes up, why did, you know, you would think, if he was going to present himself to the nation as the Messiah, that he would do so at the heart of Judaism, right there in Jerusalem, the, the, the home of the temple, right? And where, where, the, where all of the important leaders were gathered, you know, they, they, if they didn't have, they probably all had homes there some way or another, maybe their primary homes, but they had, that's where the heart of it was, the heartbeat, right, of the nation. And you would think that. And so, the, the, in fact, that's even what his brothers at the beginning of these four chapters, you may cast your mind back to the beginning of chapter 7, his brothers are saying, hey, you know, the Feast of Tabernacles is coming, we're, we're going to go on down. And they basically say to him, look, if you want to present yourself to the world, you got a, you got a lot of fans down there and where it really matters. Why are you up here in the, in the, in the sticks when you should be down in the main city, you know, uh, hobnobbing with the leaders of the nation and performing signs, right? His brother said all that. What was interesting is John's commentary is that, is that um, uh, not even his brothers believed it, right? <laughs> so it's interesting. So the point, the point I want to keep in mind, and I'm sure that, that, that there's some head scratching a lot of times by the disciples as well. I think we're going to see that when we get into chapter 11, um, where they, you know, Chapter 11, of course, the big story there is the raising of Lazarus, but there's a lot of lead up. John gives us a lot of lead up to that. And I think it's very important that he does because he sets the stage to help us understand where, where they were at that time even. Even his own disciples and his close friends like Mary and Martha and, and all these people, they're all wondering, well, they're convinced he's the Messiah. Why aren't you presenting yourself to the name? Why, why are you way up here and you know little fishing villages around the sea of galilee when you should be there at the 
at the heart of Judaism and the temple and all that. Well, it's not that he never spent time there. It just seems that he, when he does go down to Jerusalem and, 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 and particularly to the temple, it's in obedience to the word of God for those three feasts, right, that we've looked at. But as soon as that's done, he's like out of there. Okay, and I think what we're going to see, and all this is just framing to help us think about the broad, broad themes here, what's going on. Um, I think we're going to see in this chapter uh, answered for us why that is, why he didn't spend a lot of time in Jerusalem and then in the immediate surrounding area in Judea. Okay, so I'll just throw that out to you. All right. So another broad, a broad. Um, kind of contextual thing for us to, to discuss here is the Feast of Dedication, all right, which is, as I promised, right, you know, we've been talking about, hey, the second half of chapter 10 is Feast of Dedication, you know, well, that's not the Feast of Tabernacles, and you may be confused a little bit when I say that 7 through 10 happen against the backdrop of the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, it's, it's not a misstep on my part. It's a deliberate choice to, because actually the Feast of Dedication, that's what we're going to see here, this morning, the Feast of Dedication is really a re-celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles two months late. Okay, and so there is a, a, a valid, legitimate, uh, historical tie-in of these two calendar e events, okay, uh, and we're going to take a, a good look at that this morning. In fact, that's probably all we'll have time for this morning. Feast of Booths is another, yeah, and, and you'll see, in fact, um, <clears throat> it's also called uh, the Feast of the Ingathering. Uh, so, so the Feast of Dedication also has different names. It's called, we know it today as Hanukkah. We also know it um, as the uh, Festival of Lights. You may have heard it called that, right? So they have many names. Uh, Feast of Tabernacles, I think, is what John uses. That's why I use that term. And certainly a Feast of Dedication um, actually, uh, this translation says Feast of Booths. That's uh, um, King James. Feast of Tabernacles. King James. The American standard is Feast of Booths. Feast of Tabernacles. Feast of Tabernacles. New American standard includes what says Feast of Booths. Feast of Booths. Yeah, this is ESV. It's calling it Booths as well. But yes, it's it's the same same thing. All right, so let's. Um, Let's get into our notes here. I'm titling, titling this second half of chapter 10, Confrontation at the Feast of Dedication, okay? Um, what is the Feast of Dedication? We are now about two months later after the events of uh, chapter seven, verse one through 10, 21, right? So everything that we've come through in these four chapters. It's about two months. John tells us that those events happen against the backdrop of the Feast of Tabernacles. As we saw in our study of this feast, also known as the Feast of Ingathering, it was one of three feasts required in ceremonial law. And then I'm quoting here just to refresh our memories from, from the law itself, right, to show us that this is the case. Exodus 23, 14 through 17. It says, three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread as I commanded you, as, 
as I command you, shall eat unleavened bread for seven days, the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest. That's the second one of the first fruits of your labor of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering or the feast of booths or the feast of tabernacles at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year, all your males appear before the Lord God. Don't miss that last line there. That's why I think Jesus is almost as if, if that wasn't there and he was required Remember, he's accomplishing perfect righteousness, right? So he has to obey the law perfectly. He has to go to Jerusalem, has to present himself before the Lord in the temple. It's almost as if that wasn't required. He'd have been in Jerusalem even less. You know, it's, it's uh, you know, it doesn't really say that explicitly anywhere in the Gospels, but I think that the, the, the breadcrumbs are all there, at least in my thinking. Okay, to, to come to that conclusion. So let's keep reading here. Over time, the Jews added the tradition of two daily ceremonies during the feast, during the days of the feast. In the mornings, there were the water rituals, and in the evenings were the lamp lighting ceremonies. Remember, we talked about that. Notice that those are not required in the law, they were just traditions. Jesus picks up on these traditions, which in the providence of God point to him. For the water, he says in chapter 7, verse 37, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, right? As on the last great day of the feast, when they have they have water ceremony every day of the feast, but the last one is particularly, you know, exciting, and they had much more crowds, and they made a bigger deal out of it. And he stands there with a loud voice and shouts that. For the lighting ceremony, and as, as we saw as well, when he says, I am the light of the world, he's actually, John tells us he's in that courtyard where they had those huge candelabras, right, that they would light every night, uh, that would light up uh, Jerusalem. And so for the light, he proclaims himself to be the light of the world. And that's you know, once in chapter 8, again in chapter 9. As we enter the second half of chapter 10, John tells us that we are now at the Feast of Dedication. At first glance, there doesn't appear to be a connection with the Feast of Tabernacles. However, a study of the history of this, fest, of this feast reveals that it is, in fact, a re-celebration of Tabernacles, with many of the trappings of Tabernacles being carried into Dedication. Okay. For example, one, there's uh, several of them. I, I point out two in the notes here. One I didn't point out was that they're both eight days long. Okay? Remember that Tabernacles is seven plus one, right? So seven days plus the day afterwards, whatever, regardless of the day of the week. This is an important fact to remember as well. When we get to the resurrection or the crucifixion, rather, we're going to talk about this because I, I personally don't believe that he was crucified on Friday. Maybe it was Wednesday. I don't think I can show that. But the thing that you have to remember is that not every Sabbath happens on a Saturday. Very important. Most Christians don't know that. And so you get confused. And so a lot of times the Gospels will even call it a high Sabbath. And that's an indication that you're not you're not having an ordinary Sabbath on a regular day. So if the Feast of Tabernacles is seven days and it ends on Thursday, that Friday would be a high Sabbath following. So it's a seven plus one or eight days long. And so 
<clears throat> the Feast of Dedication also is eight days. Okay? That's just one, one example. There are others as well, which we'll get to in a minute. So many of the trappings of tabernacles, you'll also find like echoes in dedication. Make sense? Today, we know the Feast of Dedication as Hanukkah. <clears throat> and also Festival of Lights. Hanukkah means to dedicate in Hebrew, so it still carries its historical reference. In the 20th century, many Jews looked to turn this feast into a Jewish, Jewish alternative to Christmas. However, its origins don't look forward on the calendar to supplant a holiday, but rather backwards on the calendar to re-celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. That makes sense? When I was a boy, you know, and you kind of you grow up in America, and you you know, Christmas is the the you know that's the big holiday, right? You ever seen a Christmas story? You know, the the, the one time of year the kids the kid calendar revolves around that time of year, right? Um, yeah. So, but I became kind of tangentially aware. I remember as a kid uh, seeing little you know electric menorahs in people's windows. You know, these little lights, sometimes three, sometimes five or eight, even you know these little uh, electric candles with little little glowing bulbs you know and and uh and then i kind of just vaguely remember hearing about this this other holiday you know this uh this thing called hanukkah which happened around christmas and oh and then as i get a little older it was kind of a jewish thing oh okay and then so i kind of i kind of have thought for years that hanukkah was kind of like the jewish alternative to christmas right but while that's true and as i was doing some reading about this it was mentioned that you know particularly in the 20th century, Jews in the West, you know, wanted to kind of have their own, their own Christmas, right? Because they don't want to celebrate Christmas and, you know, honor Jesus. That's the whole thing in itself. But, so they have this Hanukkah thing, though, which happens really close to Christmas, you know, and, but that's actually not what Hanukkah is, okay? It's not, you know, try, it's not an alternative, Jewish alternative to Christmas um, is, is the point I'm trying to make there. Next paragraph. During the intertestamental period, the Jews were conquered by the Syrians and were ruled by a vicious Syrian king known as Antiochus IV Epiphanes, at, this, at the time known as the Maccabean period. Have you ever heard of the Maccabean period? If you've, if you've ever picked up one, like a Catholic Bible or something like that, or any Bible that has what we call the apocryphal books in them that, that have been added to the canon. So, so uh, the canon that we have in scripture, you know, has been carefully selected uh, for, from a larger selection of, of ancient writings that we, that we believe this to be the inspired word of God, but those ancient writings contain some good history and some things, you know, um, and, and they have historical value, but they don't rise to the level of scripture. But there are some, you know, Catholic Bible and some other Bibles that have these extra books in them. And, and there's four of those books called the Maccabees, first Maccabees, second, third and fourth Maccabees. And so what I'm going to read to you about the Feast of Dedication and its origin uh, comes from first and second Maccabees, some of those some of those historical writings from that time period. Um, I, I'm cutting out a huge amount of history here in, in in this paragraph, and we'll talk some more about that um, as we get into it. So, some extra things here that, that aren't on the notes, but um, 
the, 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 the thing to remember here is the, what I'm, the point I'm trying to make, okay? There's a lot of things that could be said about this time period, but what point I'm trying to make is the historical connection of the Feast of Dedication to the Feast of Tabernacles and how they're connected. That's the point I'm trying to get to, okay? So they have this Maccabean period, which was a rebellion against the Syrian conquerors, effectively. This ruler, that's uh, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, was the first foreign king to persecute the Jews expressly out of hatred for their religion and tried to force them to Hellenize, that is to abandon their religion and culture and to adopt Greek beliefs and culture instead. Um, if, if you know anything about Jewish history, you know this man's name. He was a bad dude, wasn't he? Um, many believe, and I think they're probably right, that he is one of the foremost examples in Jewish history, which you might call a, 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 an archetype of the ultimate Antichrist. Okay? This man was not just your normal, or, and that's what I'm trying to stress there in that little brief sentence, is, is he wasn't just your normal, average, Every day, foreign conquering king of Israel, right? Uh, many of the, many of the, of of those that that gave Israel a hard time, uh, the Philistines, you know, um, uh, the Assyrians, many others. Okay, that gave them Babylonians that gave them a hard time. Didn't didn't really treat the Jews any worse than they treated any other conquered people necessarily okay in fact the romans actually were in the in the grand sweep of history were actually pretty gracious to the jews they were they were really quite liberal with them they they let them do what they needed to do and i i think personally it's because these events happened just before rome conquered them in 62 uh, bc okay so not even a hundred years earlier or about a hundred years earlier that rome learned some lessons here rome was smart they learned some lessons from from the syrians and particularly this guy uh um, uh, <clears throat> um couldn't think of his name Antiochus uh the fourth okay he was really really brutal to the jews he um he wanted to force them to stop worshiping God. He was not just satisfied with trying to just get tributary taxes. So most, most of the time, most of the kings would conquer, you know, kind of, you know, suppress your army, kill your fighting men. And then everybody who's left basically had to pay tribute, you know, to the conquering hero. And, and they'd go on and conquer some other people. And it was just a, basically an acquisition of money for themselves, right? But this guy hated the Jewish worship system. He hated the Jewish God. He hated the temple. And he, uh, even when he went into the temple uh, after it was conquered, he sacrificed a pig in there and sprinkled the blood around to desecrate the temple. And, and if I remember my history right, he even forced the, the priests to try to eat some of the pork or some of the, some of the water the, the, that had the pork blood in it and, and this kind of thing and, and uh, killed many of the, of, these, of the priests. It became illegal to practice Judaism uh, and so, and, and he's, you know, again, was trying to force them. 
wasn't just enough to get taxes tributary. He was trying to force them to stop being worshipers of their covenant God. Um, just a funny note, okay? Anything you study about Jewish history, one, one, one of the things that's impressed me as I've learned more about them is that they love, they love these little subtle word games that they play, okay? They have a lot of, some of them are pretty nasty. They, they have a, I think one of the videos you're watching, they have a, an, an, an awful acronym for Jesus now that blasphemes him, okay? But one of the things they did here, this is kind of funny. You see there in your notes, his name, that, uh, that name, he had a different name he was born with, but his father was Antiochus III, and Antiochus III the Great was what his father called himself. He's the one that actually did the conquering. Well, when, when his son, Antiochus IV, he had a different name, but he took that title, Antiochus IV, named after his father, but then he gave himself this, Epiphanes, which, you ever had an epiphany? Right? It means the bright or brilliant one, right? You know? The Jews twisted that into a play on words, uh, Antiochus Epimenes, which John MacArthur says means madman. <laughs> so that, I'm sure that was another extra little bit of twist of the knife in his side when he, he guaranteed you he knew that, that nickname. Guaranteed he knew that nickname. And so they called him the madman, which was funny. All right, so let's keep reading here. <clears throat> So he tried to force them to adopt uh, Greek beliefs and culture instead. His outlawing of Judaism and his brutal enforcement of this ban resulted in large-scale rebellion among the Jews, who eventually won back Jerusalem and the temple, first under the leadership of Matthias, a Jewish priest, and finally under his son, Judas Maccabeus, a.k.a. Judah the Hammer, okay? Uh, Judah, Judah or Judas Maccabeus, Judah Maccabeus, um, who took over when Matthias died. Uh, in fairness, uh, Matthias had five sons total. They were all part of this, but Judah was the one who was who stood out. He was the first among peers there. He was the one who really led um, led the 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 uh, what you could really call guerrilla effort, and, and they fought many battles. This is again, there's a lot of history here that I'm not. You can go read about it on to your heart's content um, online. Uh, they had they fought many battles, took about three years, but they finally did conquer him, and they finally got the, the Jerusalem and the temple, and that's important for the point we're trying to make, okay? Everybody with me? Mm -hmm. I'm trying to give you enough without too much. All right. When the temple was reclaimed by the Jews, they held an official rededication of it on the 25th of Kislev, 164 BC. So roughly, maybe just a little less than 100 years before Rome comes in and takes over Palestine. Okay, So I say, I think, I think Rome learned their lesson. They, they saw the mistakes that this man made and tried to force the Jews to do how fastidious they to defend their system, right? And, and, and then they want it back at great cost to themselves. And when Rome comes in, they're smart enough to say, you know, you could have it, right? Just here's a few things you can't do, right? We'll talk about that. One of them was you can't put people to death anymore. That's our job, right? Even though they didn't stop them, we're going to see in our notes here, at least in John's account, they tried three times to kill Jesus. 
But anyway, so there's a few things you can't do. And of course, you got to pay us taxes. But pretty much left the Jews alone. Right? It's interesting historical background here because I think they learned a lesson about this, not just for the Jews, but for any people they conquered. They they did they were pretty pretty forgiving of that for the most part. All right. So it is too late on the calendar to celebrate. They they they, they had the official dedication on the 25th of Kislev. It is too late on the calendar for them to celebrate tabernacles. So they effectively celebrated it two months later and established the Feast of Dedication at which they originally, uh, at which they officially ended the worship of Zeus in the temple. He had I mentioned that, but in addition to killing pigs in the altar there, he set up an image to Zeus in the temple. Okay. Does that sound like anything that is coming? Coming up. Yeah. Coming up, isn't it? Yeah. yeah really. All right. So, so, so they, they, they tore that statue down, they rededicated, cleansed the temple, and reignited the worship of Yahweh. The connection to the Festival of Lights comes from the tabernacle tradition of lighting the giant menorah along with the tale of a cruise of sacred olive oil supplying fuel for eight days in the temple's menorah when it should have lasted only a day. And you probably have heard that little tale. Um, you know, whether it's true or not, it comes from the pseudepigrapha or the apocryphal books um, that, 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 that there was a, when they got into the temple there, they had found that all the oil had been desecrated, the store of olive oil had been desecrated, except for one, which was, it was basically what we call today kosher. It was blessed by the priest, right? So it was still sealed and it was enough for one day supplied. It turned out to, to, to last all eight days of the, conveniently, of the Feast of Dedication while they were pressing new oil to, to replace it, right? That's kind of the story you hear today when they talk about Hanukkah and you ask the average Jew, you know, what is it? Well, it's, you know, it's the, God supplied the eight, eight days of oil, whatever. Maybe it happened, maybe it didn't. I don't know. That's the tale. Um, <clears throat> but the truth is, that, that and I don't know how many of the Jews even know this. So the <clears throat> connection with the lights goes back to tabernacles. Okay, it, it is um, that, that tradition of, of the tabernacles. Right. So it's connection to to tabernacles. Uh, as last sentences here, as with the feast of tabernacles, Hanukkah is a time for rejoicing, with no fasting or mourning allowed. Remember, that's another another one of the echoes from. The Feast of Tabernacles. You were commanded in the law to rejoice in the Feast of Tabernacles, right? It was a time for rejoicing. You weren't so you weren't allowed to be going around fasting and, or mourning or you know whatever. Uh, it was a time to rejoice. You were commanded to rejoice, and the same thing is true with the with Hanukkah as, as well. So that's it. again another one of the echoes from the Feast of Tabernacles. This time on our calendar is mid-December, and it so explains why John notes that it was winter. Okay, so this cool kind of deal. Let me read. Um, let me read from this book here, which uh, I think does a really good job of summarizing this connection. <clears throat> this was uh, I've read this to us before, parts of it uh, when we were talking about tabernacles. Um, one of the greatest recorded celebrations of the Feast of Tabernacles occurred during during what is commonly called the intertestamental period. That's 400 years roughly between 
the end of Malachi's ministry, okay, and the start of John the Baptist. That's the intertestament period, okay? Roughly 400 years. So also, as the time, it's also known as the time of the Maccabees during the second century BC. Most people rightly associate the Maccabees with the story of Hanukkah. And listen, most don't know that the first Hanukkah was actually an observance of the Feast of Tabernacles. The entire story and celebration of Hanukkah is interwoven with the Feast of Tabernacles. Indeed, it is this festival that gives Hanukkah its structure and tradition. The Jewish nation had come under the thumb of the Syrians. The Syrian ruler Antiochus had sought to Hellenize the people of Israel by force, i.e. Uh, habituate them to Greek customs at the expense of their own religion. Jewish practices of circumcision, kosher laws, and other observances of Torah had been outlawed. The temple itself, the focal point of religious observance in Israel, had been turned into a center of pagan worship with idols to Zeus and the Greek pantheon, as well as the sacrifice of unclean animals on the altar. The temple was defiled and the people were defeated. Except for a small band of guerrilla soldiers known as the Maccabees, the nation had been subdued. But it was these guerrilla fighters in the, in the Judean hills who kept the flame of hope alive for the nation. After a series of protracted skirmishes with the Syrians, battles lasting for three years, these Maccabean warriors recaptured Jerusalem and rededicated the temple. It is this act of rededicating the temple that brings us to the connection with the Feast of Tabernacles. The actual rededication, as we said, took place on the 25th of Kislev, the ninth month of the Jewish calendar in the year 164 BC, is recorded in the book of Maccabees. Okay, so here's, here's a quote directly out of 2 Maccabees chapter 10. Now Maccabees and his followers, the Lord leading them on, recovered the temple and the city, and they tore down the altars which had been built on the public square by the foreigners, and also destroyed the sacred precincts. It happened on the same day, on the same day on which the sanctuary had been profaned by the foreigners, the purification of the sanctuary took place, that is the 25th day of the same month, which was which is Kislev. And they celebrated it for eight days with rejoicing in the manner of the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. Okay? Remembering how not long before, during the Feast of Booths, they had been wandering in the mountains and caves like wild animals, therefore bearing ivory wreathed wands and beautiful branches and also fronds of palm. There's more connection, right? all that greenery, uh, they offered hymns of thanksgiving to him who had given success to the purifying of his own holy place. That's 2 Maccabees uh, 10. <clears throat> that, that section comes up. And so it is apparent that the initial observation of Hanukkah was viewed as a celebration two months late of the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, and this, I thought this was interesting too. So, and this is also from 2 Maccabees. Letters from Jerusalem went out to the dysphoria community. What's the dysphoria? The dispersed Jews, right? So the, those Jews that are not living in the heartland, you know, the, in the motherland. Um, and, and, and this is interesting. It says here, particularly in Egypt, okay? Um, 
one of one of the interesting historical facts that you need to keep in mind is you know of course we know that the birth of jesus right when herod finds out that he's in <clears throat> bethlehem and he you know joseph is warned in a dream to go where egypt if you're like me you tend to think well why egypt well believe it or not even at this time this is a couple hundred years before that there's a large jewish community down in egypt well established and so when joseph goes down there he's not like just going you know nowhere land okay he's going to a, a healthy jewish community already down there and, and and coming with with gold and frankincense and myrrh which are very pricey you know which would have enabled them to not only uh, provide for the trip to get well established down there for a while for interesting all the historical you know coincidences <laughs> right okay so anyway so here's here's the letters that went out from jerusalem at this time after they conquered this particularly in egypt okay announcing these events and saying quote to the brethren the jews in egypt greeting the brethren the jews in jerusalem and throughout the land of judea wish you perfect peace see that you keep the days of the feast of tabernacles in the month of kislev whereas we are now about to celebrate the purification of the temple in the month of kislev on the 25th day we deem it our duty to inform you that you too may keep the feast of tabernacles end quote so some interesting history there that um well, why is this important well if it wasn't it wouldn't be in the bible right god doesn't waste any words but what i think is interesting here is is that this whole time of the feast of of tabernacles uh is the final ingathering and i believe after reading this book when he talks about christ and the, the feast of, of tabernacles um that it is it is a forerunning picture of the final harvest uh that is to come so they had an early feast uh for early uh, ingathering, if you will, feast of, of the harvest, and then they had another one at the end of the year, which is almost like at the end of the church age when God gathers in all of His believers. It's very interesting, and they're all dwelling not in a temple made, you know, in Jerusalem, but they're dwelling in these little temples, the temporary little temples. And if you remember, <clears throat> um, the, the the apostles would often talk about. And like Peter said, you know, it's no trouble for me to remind you as long as I'm in this tent, right? Or this little tabernacle that I dwell in here. Um, and yes, it, it was a it was a, a feast that looked back to the calling out of their forebears and when they dwelled in tents as they're coming through the wilderness, right? Coming out of Egypt. But there again, that's also a picture of us as we're called out of, and we're dwelling in tents now, as we're called out of the world to the promised land right some beautiful pictures here and, and so this backdrop is is so meaningful and even though this feast of dedication was john goes out his way to tell us you know this is this is when it happens it it's it's not required but it definitely has these echoes of the same idea of rejoicing and of, of this greenery this fresh greenery and and of, of of the water of god's word and the light of the world all of those things converge together in this backdrop uh, in the foreground of which jesus is offering himself to anyone who will hear as the shepherd who is calling out those sheep from that system 
right, that they fought so hard to keep and to build and maintain and had turned into this self-glorifying thing of, of self-righteousness. God's calling, Jesus is calling them out, and he's calling out sheep from another fold into the promised land that he will lead them to. It's exciting. Love those, those pictures there. So I wanted to take some time today, and like I said, that's, <clears throat> that's all we're going to do for today. So next week we will dig into this text. Um, really an exciting text. Again, it has, it, it really belongs in chapter 10 because it not only is connected to, you know, Feast of Tabernacles, but also in here, Jesus refers back to what he said two months earlier about the shepherd and his sheep hear his voice. And so there is that connection as well. Any thoughts? Yes. Um, when they did the when the Maccabeans, or when they went ahead and um, they dedicated the temple and all that, was it important? Was it the tribe of Levi that was the ones that were the that was the ones who took care of everything in the temple? The priests, yes, the Levites. The, the Levites. Did they have to find some Levites? You know, some people from that tribe somehow or another to. To be able to dedicate, rededicate the temple again, you know, after they took it, um, would they have to do that to mean keep everything in line? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I'm asking. Was that a crucial thing yeah. to do it right? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Okay. So I mean, yeah. that was hard for them too. They the had Jews to find. Jews very fastidious about that. It wasn't just like, okay, we're going to find, okay, and then we're going to find this person, and they're going to go ahead and do it. You, 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 yeah. You're the one who does right. it. And, yeah. Right. Jesus yeah. exactly right. Exactly right. Remember, I mean, you can see, you can see that even in, in, the, in that little story about the, you know, the little cruise of oil that was only supposed to last a day. Well, you know, as I, as I read about that, you know, because, again, I'd heard that, you know, as a kid, you know, you hear these little fabulous tales, and, 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 what I could, from what I could tell, it wasn't that they didn't have other oil there. It was just that that was the only one that hadn't been desecrated by the Assyrians for their worship of their <clears throat> Greek. You know, we, we're all familiar with the Greek pantheon, right? Zeus and all those gods, right? That's what they were worshiping in the temple there, and and so apparently they would use, you know, in the temple there were these stores blessed by priests, sealed containers of this oil, right? So yes, they were very fastidious, you know. It's what kosher means, right? It's been, you know, the whole process and the product itself has been blessed by a rabbi, you know, to, to be to be acceptable for, for Jews who are very fastidious about their diet. They had to find new priests. They did. They did. That, that was a lot easier then than it is today because they still had the records of who was in what tribe. Today we don't have that. That's been lost. After the destruction of the temple, all those records were destroyed. Well, when you were talking earlier, Pete, it sounded like God is able to parallel events past, present, future. <laughs> I like pretty big God. Yeah. Is that a surprise? It is neat how you seem like the more you dig, the more you see parallels. It's not crazy. It is. How many, how many details? I mean, over spans of epics of time. Everything is, you know, just wow. Well, wow. You know, we we read past details like that really quickly, 
it's, you know, if it's and they mean a lot. But they mean so much. They mm. really Three do. Quarters, you got a whole week's worth of study, right, Pastor? Yes. Yeah. Jesus talked about when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken by Daniel the prophet, that he figured the prophecies for this stuff in the temple. Putting up the temple and the Zeus and all these other things. Desecrating the temple is going to happen again. That's right. That's right. Exactly right. What were the names of the other three? You had uh, Antiochus, and you said there were the, there was a total of four of them that were like, totally useless. Oh, no. you were on one of them, or? Oh, no, 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 no. Antiochus the fourth is he. He was named after his dad was like I'm the fourth, and he's third. Okay, so it yeah. was all the Antiochus. Were the yeah, I'm not putting a number on the on, on how many you know archetypes oh, okay. there are. Of, um, yeah, no, Nero Nero's persecution of the Jews was limited to 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 Rome, predominantly, um, and there was even signs that I think uh, his predecessor. No, no, it might have been Nero. Nero. Nero was a point where Nero just really lost it, but before that, he was. Kind of like Saddam Hussein, there was a point where he just like, or even Putin, like Putin was like, man, 20 years, hey, Russian comedy, you can get all of a sudden, like, hey, what's going on with this guy, <laughs> right? Um, uh, Nero was like that too. There was a point where he really lost it. But before then, <clears throat> you may remember in Acts, it says that, that Jews were essentially told to leave Rome. They, they couldn't, they had to pack up their business and leave, you know, for whatever reason. So, um, but Nero, Nero's persecution of, that really didn't happen until um, you know 70 AD. Titus, General Titus, was the one that really came in and stamped out Jerusalem. But even then, the destruction of Jerusalem was not so much driven by hatred of their God like it was in Titus. Titus Epiphanes was was vicious to he hated their system. He hated their hated the law, hated the scriptures. Like a modern day Hitler, yes, very much so. But he, he, he hated, he hated you. Oh, yes, yeah. oh, yes, yeah, and what? <laughs> and he was a Jew, Hitler was. What was a Jew? He wasn't I, I don't know, I've heard that rumor. I've heard some Austria, yeah. All right, let's let's close in prayer, Father. You're so amazing. So amazing. We, it's, it's, it really is a blessing when we slow down and sometimes and just really take a, a careful look at Scripture and, and the history. You are the God of history, as David rightly said. You, you have and continue to orchestrate all of these things that are happening. Like we, we wake up one day and we see Russia invading Ukraine and we scratch our heads. And it's, from our perspective, it seems like it came out of nowhere. But it's ordained from you from the beginning. And I don't know what your purposes are in it, but I know you have it. And, uh, and so we thank you that we have uh, a God who's big enough to do this. And I was just talking to a brother I had lunch with on Friday about the same thing. And it's just, it's so encouraging to see how um, you are sovereign, not just in the grand strokes of history, these, these armies conquering other armies and, nations rising and falling and that type of thing at a, at a macro scale but you are 
the God even of our lives. And even today, uh, as it says in Scripture, the steps of a righteous man are ordered by God. Even today, the, the choices that we make, you know, what we're going to have for lunch, what we're going to look at here this morning in the service, um, what's going to happen to us this coming week are all within your providence. And we thank you for, um, and, and that's what providence means, is the sovereign outworking of your plan in every detail. And there is truly no rogue molecule in the universe. And we thank you that you are that big. It's astounding to us to think uh, just how fast and, and comprehensive and yet how also how intimate your plan is. We thank you, as Dad said, for this privilege of being called to be part of your flock of people, the called out ones, the ones who are, who are called out from the Egypt of systems of this world to the promised land. We thank you for our Messiah, uh, for his, for our great shepherd, who is individually and corporately leading us in this direction. And we thank you for the joy that we look forward to in the final ingathering of all the saints in eternity. And we pray this in Jesus' name.